Cody, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about some stuff. I know I sent you some questions to kind of go over, but I did not send you this one on purpose. It is our standard leadoff question. So I don't know if you picked this up from the other podcasts you listened to, but if an eight-year-old walks up to you and says, Cody, how do I swim fast? What's the secret to swimming fast? What are you going to tell him? That's a great start-off question. Uh, two things. Number one, I always tell kids to make sure that they're having fun. Um, and it sounds cliche, but it's true for the longest time. The only reason why I swam and a big part of the reason why I'm still swimming today is because I enjoy the lifestyle and because I get to go to the pool every day, goof off with my friends, blow bubble rings, whatever, and have a good time. Um, but to get faster, you need to have fun because you need to enjoy it. It can't always be a grind. Um, and then the second thing is that there are going to be days, I, I love telling young kids this, there are going to be days that just suck when you don't want to do it, when you don't want to do those 10 200 IMs or you don't want to get out of bed at 5.30 when that alarm goes off. And every single person, no matter how good they are, no matter if you're Michael Phelps or Katie Ledecky, they all have those moments where they question themselves and they're like, man, do I really need to do this? Or do I really want to do this? Is it worth it? And um, it's human to feel those emotions and feel those, those, that, that sense of doubt. So I, I would say to those young kids, make sure you're enjoying yourself and having fun, but also understand there's another side to that. Sometimes there's going to be a little bit of suckage and that's okay. That's okay. It's good for you. Do you remember how you came to that realization yourself? Did someone tell you that or did you ultimately realize that, that second part there? I think it... <sighs> I think it's a little bit of both. I definitely grew up in an, in an environment where we kind of, as a group collectively, embraced the fact that what we were doing was oftentimes really, really hard and extremely daunting and sometimes borderline terrible. Um, I grew up swimming for, for Ron Aiken at the, the Sandpipers in Nevada, and um, I always credit them to you know, building the foundation for my success. Um, both physically and mentally. Oftentimes, I, I look back on the sets that I was given as a fairly young swimmer that a lot of coaches would say are just too much or is just too hard or has no benefit. Um, you know, the dreaded 15, 400 IMs, whatever you want to call it. Um, but for me, I think that helped build a foundation of obviously the, the aerobic base, that foundation. But then also, I have this mindset of like, it can't get worse. Or I've already been through the worst. I've weathered the, the worst storms possible. Um, and I think it was just like over time, you know, I, I don't think that there was just a moment where I was like, okay, this is what I need to do to get better. Or this mm -hmm. is how I operate or this is what's best for me. Um, it was definitely kind of how I was raised. And then I think as I've gotten older and matured and throughout my career, I look at, okay, what's made me successful? What's helped me be my best at my best? What hasn't worked? You know, all those kinds of things. It's a constant give and take. Yeah. And before we dive into more of, you know, the here and now as a professional swimmer, I'm really curious, what were your first experiences like as a swimmer? What were, what were the earliest moments you remember about the sport? Oh, the earliest moments I remember. Um, I remember as like a five-year-old, my, the whole reason I swam was because uh, my mom didn't know how to swim and um, she wanted me to be, she was really, you know, she was scared of the water and she, yeah. she, uh, she didn't want her kids to feel that same way. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the other hand, my dad grew up around the water, grew up, you know, in the lakes oh, okay. of Canada and swimming and stuff. And so my earliest memory is I remember my dad teaching me just basic mechanics of like how to doggy paddle, how to float, how to swim. Those are some of my earliest memories actually. Um, and then fast forwarding a little bit when I get into kind of the club scene, like my earliest memories as a club swimmer, I remember joining a team. And I just remember being so cold, I didn't want to swim. 
I hated it. I was freezing and my mom forced me and I never wanted to do it. I was, I was the kid that was sitting on the side of the pool deck, just shivering, yeah. wanting to get in that you basically just had to shove in the pool to tell them to keep going. That was me. I was that, I was that annoying kid that coaches like dread having. So how did you get past that? Or was it just your parents continuing to, to push you? I'm curious, like, I mean, that's a real thing, right? And as a kid, yeah. I can imagine you being like, mom, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to find another sport. I'm going to go play soccer or basketball or something like, so, I mean, and that's a, we can joke about that's such, so trivial, but that's a real thing that can drive kids away from the sport. It definitely, it definitely is. I mean, you know, for me, I, so that was around age eight, around eight years old is when my mom first put me in like uh, lessons at the YMCA and I was on the YMCA team. And then we shortly then moved to a USA swimming club. Um, the first club I ever swam for was actually uh, the Central Valley Aquatics in uh, Southern California area. And I lived there for about a year. And I just remember, I, 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 I can't believe this, but when I was little, I, I thought I was too young. I, I remember at like age eight, age nine, I was like, I'm too young. I want to do this. I'll come back when I'm 10 years old. I'm old. Um, and the more my mom just honestly just forced me to go, I, you know, I made friends and, and I had fun when I was on the wall or when I was hanging out with kids at the pool. And um, over time for me, it was the social environment. Because um, for me, growing up, all even through you know middle school and high school, I was I was like a really awkward kid. Um, I was really uncomfortable, and it was difficult for me to make friends because I wasn't super super outgoing. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's weird because people see me now as like this dude on YouTube who makes right. all these videos, and I'm like, I, I I have the perception of being extremely outgoing and extremely bubbly and friendly, um, wh which I am. But you know, it's funny because I'm more of an introvert than I am an extrovert. And people don't realize that because they only see the one side, you know, obviously mm. you're extrovert or making videos and whatnot. Um, and so growing up, um, you know, to circle back, it was, it was, it was giving me a sense of community, a sense of family, people, you know, a, a belongingness. Um, and honestly, just a place where I could kind of be myself and have fun. And that kind of allowed me to grow into myself and dude, I'm still doing it. <laughs> you know? Up until that point, Cody, you were, you're still in the Central Valley there in age 10 or whatever. Do you remember any instances that moments pretty powerful of coaches along the way at that point? Or would that come later in your career? I can, no, honestly, I can think of a few. I remember we had a, a female assistant coach named Jen. And I remember I won, it was one of my very first races at a club meet that I won. Oh, cool. And I think it was a hundred backstroke, which is funny because my- Were they handing out the ribbons at these meets or is that-, is that Yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it was totally a ribbon meet. It was totally a ribbon meet. And I was so excited because I knew I was going to get a ribbon. And I, I, I maybe, it, it was the first meet, the first race that I can actually remember winning. I might have won a race prior or been in other races and had ribbons, but I, was, I just remember at that moment I was excited to get a ribbon. And I was so excited when I finished and touched the first that I jumped out of the pool and like ran over. And I ran over to where they were going to give out the ribbons. And I had a club coach pull me aside and, and she said, uh, I remember her name was Jen. She said, she taught me the first lesson I ever had about common courtesy. She said, it's, it's common courtesy to wait for your competitors to finish swimming before you get out of the pool and then go a step further and congratulate them and tell them good job and be a good sport. Mm. And I think I was probably nine years old at the time. And that was the first memory where I had is like, okay, like treating people around me after races is important. Mm. How I'm perceived is important. Um, you know, sportsmanship is important. And that honestly, just the term and the phrase common courtesy, was foreign to me. And that was my first experience of that. And I, that stuck with me for whatever reason that really stuck with me. And to this day, I make a point to every time I finish a race, whether it's, you know, at, at world championships or it's just at a tier pro series or, or 
any meet, I always try to shake the hands of both people to my right and left after races. And I think it started, you know, all the way back when I was you know, nine years old. Hmm. No, that's really cool. So now keep going along your swimming career. So we're 10. When do you connect with Ron and, and the Sandpipers there? Is that pretty soon after? Yeah. So I swam for the Central Valley Aquatics team for a year. We were in Turlock, which is just south of Modesto, I believe. Yeah. Um, I was going Bakersfield. So yeah, I know what you're talking about. Oh, there you go. Yeah. One of my best <laughs> friends went to, uh, went to Bakersfield. Yeah. Um, grew up swimming with him, a guy named Jake Priest. Okay. Um, very cool. Anyway, so we lived in, in California for a year and then we moved to Las Vegas um, when I was just about 10 years old. So like turning 10 and right away, that's when I joined the Sandpipers of Nevada. And, and were you, um, you like know, excited about that? Like, oh, hey, we're moving. Like, where, where's the club team to start? Or what's your, what's your outlook going into that? I, my outlook was, uh, it, from what I remember, I was nervous. Because as I said, I was kind of a nervous kid. It wasn't easy for me to make friends. I wasn't the most outgoing. And so I was, I was nervous because I remember being on CVS or being in California. Um, that was like really the first time when I felt like I had like a real group of friends. You know, we lived in a house at a cul-de-sac and I knew my neighbors and we were leaving that. Um, and I joined Sandpipers and it took me a while to kind of, kind of grow into that. But, you know, it's funny looking at that because at the time I think Sandpipers had maybe 40 swimmers. I oh, could be wow. wrong. Maybe, maybe a little more, maybe a little more than that, but there wasn't very many. Wow. And now Sandpipers is this dominant yeah. powerhouse of a club with like 500 swimmers and Ron's got like 15 Olympic trial qualifiers. It's, it's crazy. It's weird, man. So, so what's... I'm assuming then when you join the club at 10 or 11 there, Ron's not your coach at that point. You had a few coaches, few groups to get up to that senior level. Yeah, I actually, well, actually, like I said, it was pretty small at the time. So I was with uh, Chris Barber, who is still there, still yeah. coaching. The, he was actually just on the podcast. Was he really? Oh my <laughs> God, I'm going to go back and listen to it. That's I don't think it's been released yet, but yeah, we, we definitely have recorded one with him oh, in the last okay. few weeks. Yeah. Man, that's amazing. I'm definitely going to listen to that. Yeah. So Chris was my, Chris was my coach from basically 10 till I want to say about 14 ish. Mm. And from 14, honestly, it might even have been 13. Um, and then I moved on to Ron's group for the, the next four or five years or however many years to me, it's all kind of, kind of hazy, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, now there's a whole bunch of different groups, but back then it was just like, there were really only two or three groups. You that's know? really cool then that you can look back and see this success of just the greater team as a whole and the coaching staff and knowing like, Hey, I was there kind of around the beginning of that as well. Yeah. yeah it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's crazy to see how, how far they've grown. I can't believe you had Chris on the podcast. I'm so psyched to listen to that. That's really cool. <laughs> so then so many things. Oh yeah. 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 Tell me how so, to talk to girls. <laughs> I'm never going to forget that. <laughs> so anyway, sorry. when did you first start to know, Hey, I'm pretty good at this swimming thing. I mean, aside from winning that ribbon there that we talked about earlier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, crazy thing. I had kind of a roller coaster, um, at about a year into swimming with sandpipers. I remember I, uh, I swam like a really good hundred breaststroke at maybe it was a junior Olympics meet or something. Um, and I, I remember winning and, uh, I, I knew like I won the meet and, uh, I swam a really fast time, but then it wasn't until I got the splash, my first ever splash magazine oh, a couple yeah. months later. And it had the rankings of all yeah. of the kids across the country. And I remember I was, I was the number 100, 100 meter breaststroker in the country for the 10 and 
the tenant under age group at the time. And that like blew my mind. I was like, oh, I am the best. I'm the greatest in America. Like, I'm like, like a little 10 year old, just, you know, little kid. He just thinks he's the greatest. And uh, so at that moment, I was like, ah, I want to be an Olympian. I want to do this and that. And the funny thing is, I, after that, it was just like a, it was just a decline. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I, I really didn't have any big swimming success until about 16 um, because I was always kind of small. You know, like when you're 10, everyone's kind of small. Yeah. Um, I guess now there's some bigger 10-year-olds. But uh, yeah, I just, I was a good 10-year-old swimmer. And then honestly, for the next five years, pretty much I was swimming for the friendships, for, for the social environment, for, I mean, all, all of those other reasons, except for really physical performance. Mm. So is that frustrating? Like, that's really interesting that you were really good, highly ranked as a 10 year old, and then yeah. it actually goes down. And then yeah. at some point you start to climb back up. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I completely fell off and was like a horrible swimmer, but right. I was by no means like the best in the country, you know? Um, and that was kind of, that was kind of hard for me. And I just like, you know, wasn't really sure. And, you know, especially around like age 13, 14, like I was really small for like a 13, 14 year old. Mm. And, um, that was kind of the, that's kind of the time, the age when people really start to fill out and get bigger. And, um, you know, then right around age 15, I remember Ron pulled me aside and he told me this was about a year out from Olympic trials back in 2008. So it would have been 2007. And he's like, you have a shot to make Olympic trials. He's like, do you know how many high schoolers make Olympic trials? And I was like, I had no idea. He was like, not very many, very, very few. <laughs> like, you could be one of the best. And for whatever reason, the way he articulated that I could be one of the best mm. really stuck with me. And I, I remember working really, really hard that year. Um, and that year I broke a couple, my first, really my only ever national age group records that I set. I broke, I remember breaking Brennan Hansen's national age group record at Short Coast Juniors in Texas at his pool. That's awesome. it was like, it was so cool. Cause I like idolized that dude. And, and, um, and, and then once again, 16 year old Cody, I'm like, I'm the best. I'm going to be great. I'm going to be the greatest. And then it was like a slow decline. <laughs> like, oh my God. So my, the two years following that were not great. Um, I was a, I was a good college swimmer. You know, I was, I was an NCAA finalist. So I was, I was a very good college swimmer. Um, but you know, no one was ever pegging me to be like the next great American breaststroker. Right. Yeah. What no did even recruiting great. look like for you? Um, recruiting, recruiting was, I mean, I had a blast with recruiting. Um, I was one of the, I was one of the top level recruits in the country. Mm. Um, I was, I remember taking official visits to Texas, uh, official visit to USC in California, and then to Indiana was my third visit. Um, so re recruiting, recruiting was good, but you know, but the biggest thing for me, it's like, I looked at Texas, I looked at USC, they had all these Olympic swimmers, they had all these crazy fast swimmers and I wanted to be there cause that's what I wanted to be. But you know, I needed, I needed the scholarship money and I was good, but you know, full rides weren't in the cards for those schools. Right. If looking back on the totality of your career, where would you say is maybe the biggest turning point then? Especially, it sounds like there are lots of ups and downs. If you look back, is there kind of a seminal moment? Yeah, I would, I would certainly say that the, the biggest moment, like the biggest aha moment that really made me believe that I could, you know, make the Olympics or uh, have a shot at making the Olympics was, wasn't until after I graduated college, honestly, you know, I finished my senior year in March of 2014 and I got second place at NCAAs in the tuna breast at Kevin. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a great, I, you know, I had a really great college career. I was very, very proud of it. Um, but like I said, I, I was not being pegged as, you know, I'd never been on a world championship team. I'd never been on a major international team. Um, and I wasn't pegged as the guy who was going to be this next Olympic you know, breaststroker. 
And so here I am two years out from 2016 Olympic trials and I want to keep swimming. I'm a good swimmer, but I'm not on funding. You know, mm. I'm on the, I'm on the U S national team, but unless you're at that time, unless you were top 14 in the world, you weren't on any kind of funding and never kind of sponsors. Um, and I, you know, wasn't in a position where I had family to fall back on. You know, I had, I had to basically forge my own path, make my own way. And there was a turning point where I was like, okay, I'm either going to like quit swimming and get a job and like figure out my life <laughs> or I'm just going to dive all dive head into this for two years and just find ways to support myself yeah. and hope it works out. And about five months after that, my, my final NCAA meet was uh, uh, U.S. Nationals in Irvine, California. And uh, that was when I won the 100 meter breaststroke. Which, which put me on the Panpex team, which then put me on the world championship team um, and also get, got me funding that year. Um, and that was the biggest moment was, was winning a long course national title. And that was when I was like, okay, maybe I can, you know, actually make the Olympics. Maybe, maybe this could be real. That was when I like really believed, okay, like this is possible, but it was a lot of ups and downs. Like I, I always tell people, it's like, no one has a, has a clear path to success yeah. where their goal is, but there's just, there, it's a roller coaster. And, and that's kind of, that's part of the beauty of it, I think. Do you remember your mindset going into that nationals in 14? I remember my mindset being it's all or nothing. Like mm. it was either I was going to do really well at this meet and prove that I, you know, could justify continuing swimming as a pro or I was, you know, I could potentially be done. That was mm. my mindset, you know, and the five months leading up to that, you know, once I finished school, um, you know, I had to work side jobs. I was washing cars, cleaning motorcycles just to scrape rent. Money. Really? So, yeah. Just so I could train just to go to nationals. Um, so for me, it was like, it was, you know, I was, it was really nitty gritty. It was kind of make or break. And, um, I think it made me better. Like, I think, I mean, clearly it worked out okay, but you know, throughout your swimming career up until that point, were you able to respond when you put that kind of self pressure on? Cause it sounds like you, you were pretty honest with yourself. Like, Hey, if I don't make it here, I, like you said, I got to go get a real job. You know, what, what am I doing? But I feel some swimmers too, when they put pressure on themselves, it crushes them and, and, the, and it's too much expectation. So I'm curious, it seems like you're kind of able to use that. It sounds like to then get yourself to another level. Yeah. I mean, everyone's different, right? I know people who that added pressure that they put on themselves ultimately makes them better. And mm. then I see other athletes and I know you've seen other athletes who put that added pressure on themselves and it is the instrument of their own destruction. Um, and so it's kind of a balancing act. And for me, you know, I always, I, I grew up kind of with a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. I always felt like I had something to prove. And mm. I think that that kind of motivated me to, you know, always in my own mind, I wanted to be able to justify the fact that, you know, regardless of the outcome, However, the season went, however, the race went, however, the trial went, whatever it was, um, I didn't want to look back and have any kind of what ifs. Mm. Um, I, I wanted to be able to say that, you know, I reaped the, the benefit, the reward or the failure of everything that I put in. Um, and because of that, because I, I had that mentality and I don't honestly, I'm not quite sure where that mentality came from. Quite honestly, maybe it was my mom installing it in me. Maybe it was my club coaches. Um, but because I've always kind of had that that frame of mind, um, I've always been okay with whatever the outcome was going to be. And so by putting pressure on myself and being like, okay, this is it. I'm going to make it or break it. Um, ultimately I think that that helped me. Um, but that's certainly not the case with everybody. You know, mm -hmm. some people, it's just the, the psychology of, of a swimmer's mind is, is fascinating to me. I love talking to, to swimmers, especially swimmers who are, who are very, very, very different from me. 
Um, it's, it's, it's very interesting. So how to then 14 happens, you win, you get a, a sponsorship with tier. You're like, okay, Hey, I, I might be able to be a professional swimmer here, kind of live the life, but you still have two more years before you're able to make the Olympic team. <laughs> Did, was there any complacency or was it okay? Now I feel like I have the backing to then go do what I think I can. I think, you know, looking back at that, once, once I won that, once I won that race, it was like, you know, full steam ahead. It was, uh, now I have the justification for continuing to train and continuing to pursue my dream. Mm -hmm. And now it was just like, no, that I, I, I certainly wasn't the person who's like, okay, I just won nationals now. And now I've made it. It wasn't that at all. It was, I just won nationals and I've proved that I deserve to be here. Now I have to do something about it. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I would say, I think that winning that race made me, honestly, it made me probably a little bit more hungry because all of a sudden now I was in the spotlight. Now people are, you know, kind of looking at me a little bit as, as a viable contender. And, you know, I like, I, I always felt like I kind of had something to prove. Was it that moment 14 where you start to consider yourself an elite swimmer? And if not, where, where was that, where you started to think of yourself that way? Uh, I, I, I kind of, I don't know, like I kind of think that I've always kind of considered myself an elite swimmer, like, but I, I try not to get too, inflated with my ego like mm. I, I think it's a balancing act right right like, i think the best swimmers and the best, at, best athletes in the world like you need to tell yourself like i'm the best mm. like I, I got this like no you know whatever you're doing like i'm like no one can do this you need to kind of have that but then you also kind of have to have you know you have to have that humility right you have to be able to you know, kind of understand like i gotta be able to look up and be like okay look i'm not adam Keaty, right that's not like i'm not that but what can i be right and um so I think I always kind of viewed myself as an elite swimmer. I think that, you know, even, even in my times of, you know, in my, in my, in my down moments when I wasn't the best swimmer, I always viewed myself as being one of the best swimmers. Cause you know, I like the term fake it till you make it. Mm. I, I think that there's some truth to that. You know, yeah. there were like, I would tell myself like, I'm going to win NCAAs, even though like mm. I knew like, okay, Kevin's like four seconds ahead of everybody. Like it's probably not going to happen, but like you kind of have to, you have to have that mentality. I think. Well, that's what's interesting about the sport of swimming, right? Is that there aren't as many upsets in more team sports, right? Like it's easier for an underdog in a basketball or football setting to pull that upset. And especially being such a time-based sports, it is kind of easier to box yourself in as a swimmer. Oh yeah, he's four seconds ahead of me. There's no way I'm making that up, you know, yeah. in a few weeks. But like you said, you have to have the mentality of, well, maybe I can. And, you know, I'm good enough that I could make that jump. But then you got to back it up in the pool too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think oftentimes with our sport being very cut and dry, um, mm -hmm. very much, you know, the times of the times, the places of the places, this is the world that we live in. People often get wrapped up in, these are my in-season times. These are my end of season goals. This is probably what I'm going to go throughout the year. And this is what I want to be. And we often forget that those Hail Mary moments, those, oh my God, that guy just dropped a, an 18-1, came out of nowhere, it kind of split. Those things do happen in our sport. They are possible. We've seen it. You know, I'll never forget as a 16-year-old kid watching Jason Lezak throw down oh, that God, absurd yeah. relay split. You know what I mean? So like it ha and I think that it's important for us to have perspective and realize that yes, our sport is very cut and dry. Yes, you oftentimes reap what you sow. Yes, you get what you deserve. But on the other hand, there's still that little part of sport that sometimes that Hail Mary pass you know, lands and makes it and works out. Sometimes people do things that are 
kind of defy the odds. Mm. Um, and we, and we forget. And that's why, but, but I also think that that's kind of why, you know, when you watch those crazy splits at NCAAs or you watch those big world championship moments that kind of came out of nowhere, you know, it, it's, it means so much more because I mm-hmm. guess it is a little bit more rare in our sport. What's the hardest thing that maybe you had to change or just shift slightly kind of being now a professional elite swimmer? So when you say that, you mean the adjustment from being like a college swimmer? Yeah. To yeah. So now this is your, your full-time job, man. Yeah. You're getting paid to perform. What, what yeah. kind of adjustment does that take? It, it, it's weird because, you know, at first, okay, I graduate college. Now I'm like a pro swimmer, but I'm a pro swimmer who's broke. If it has no money. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I've got to be good. I've got to do well. Um, and then I do do well. Um, and then now I'm on funding Now I have sponsorships and now it's like, okay, now I'm, I'm swimming for myself, but I'm also, I have to swim well or I'm not going to have any income. Right. And I'll tell you what, dude, like even just the last two years, I, I mean, summer of 2018, I mean, so I had a pretty, pretty gnarly injury at the beginning of 2018 and I went that whole year without any, any funding. So I, mm. I missed APA funding, which for those people listening who don't know what APA is, basically the USOC the USOC supports um, potential Olympic swimmers. Um, if you're ranked top 16 in the world, they basically fund you. And it's, you know, about $40,000 a year. So, you know, you go to US Nationals, you get third place, you're 13th in the world, woohoo, you make funding, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then in addition, like you might get a suit contract or some other sponsors here, but I was in a position where I was so off for so long because I had such a bad injury. And then I failed to perform well and I failed to make a certain ranking. And then I had no income. Mm. I've lived both lives. I've lived the life where it's like, boom, I just won. I've got all this money coming in. Things are good. But I've also been to the point where I just, you know, missed making teams. I lost a race. So my ego is hurt, but my wallet's also hurting. Right. That's a reality that a lot of us live in. How do you keep pushing through that? I mean, Cody, you've had so many ups and downs. At some point, don't you just kind of get tired? Like, man, like, why am I, why am I still on this roller coaster here? I don't know. Like, I, I, I think that I can't really appreciate some of the, the best moments in my life or the most or the best successes or the victories or those little things without those, those pitfalls to look back mm-hmm. on. Like, I mean, just if, geez, just four or five months ago, if you would have asked me how I felt about, you know, having that knee injury and having basically just a whole year where I wasn't swimming well, um, I regretted everything. I would have changed all these things. But now I'm in a position in my life where I, I genuinely feel like I'm training better than I've ever trained before right now. And I have a lot of confidence leading into, you know, this next trials. However it goes, whatever, I, I don't have any doubts or any, any what ifs. Um, and so oftentimes I feel like, you know, in the moment, you, you know, you have no idea, but hindsight's twenty twenty, and mm. be able to look back on those things and, and to some extent be grateful because, you know, for me, having gone through those things, I find that I can resonate and connect with people and understand people better. Um, you know, the one thing I always talk about is it's like, I grew up idolizing a guy like Michael Phelps, right? Like mm. I had posters of the guy on my wall. Like I worshiped the ground he walked on as a young kid. Um, but he is so different for me because he is just like the, one of the most talented, crazy, freakish human beings like on the planet. It's, it's hard for me to find something to connect with him on, right? Mm. Um, aside from the fact that we love swimming. Sure. Right. 
Uh, but for me, now that I've been to the Olympics, I've had these accomplishments and I'm meeting young kids, I'm not far off. I'm not that far off from those other young kids that meet me. Like I'm now telling them, I'm like, look, I was just like you. I was that mm-hmm. little kid that wanted to be an Olympic swimmer, but for years was told that he was too small, was really insecure and wasn't the fastest kid on the team, let alone the fastest kid in, in his lane. You know, like I've been there. So I, I feel like having gone through a lot of these struggles, it's, it's helped me gain a lot of perspective of myself, other people, our sport as a whole. Um, I tend to be a positive person. So I, I try to, I try to look at everything as a glass half full kind of a perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think those things kind of force people to grow. Yeah. So with that, you know, the first question you answered, you talked about, you know, you got to have fun and you got to know it's going to suck. Yeah. So I'm curious in some of these up and downs the last year or so, how did you make sure you kept the fun in it? That that was still there because obviously there it's going to suck, right? Having an injury, yeah. working through that. But on yeah. some level too, you got to make sure that joy stays there to help power you through that stuff. Honestly, though, it was the weirdest thing. It's like I uh, 2016 was great. You know, I made the Olympics. My dreams came true. And then 2017 was a little bit of an off year, but you know, I was still fifth at World Championships. And then following that meet. I don't know, like my passion and my love for training wasn't the same. It wasn't mm-hmm. gone, but it wasn't the same. And I'd always been like this, I'd always been a really big movie fan and film buff fan. And, and I, and I, I thought about like, okay, I'm going to make like a movie. Like I'm going to make a, like a, a swimming documentary. That was like this project that I've been thinking about. And throughout that process of like learning how to do it, I stumbled upon vlogging and YouTube yeah, yeah, yeah. and stuff. And then I was like, okay, maybe I can make like a swimming vlog. And my idea was just like to make one, like just like a day in the life of a swimmer. And I made this video and long story short, now I have this YouTube channel with this big following. But to answer your question, for really the last three years, finding something outside of swimming, but is still slightly connected hmm. to swimming in making swimming videos and making, you know, hopefully entertaining pieces of content for other people has kind of helped me keep the fun. Because it's given me a side project outside of the pool to kind of work on, right? To keep right. me off of actual physical training. Still related to swimming, still swimming videos, but I'm not worried about how fast I'm going. I'm not worried about who I'm beating. I'm not worried about what times I'm going. I'm worried about, okay, this little piece of content that I'm making is, is 10-year-old Cody. Would 10-year-old Cody love this? Mm. Would I enjoy this? That's what I think about. Um, and so to answer your question, it's it's honestly, it's it's for me, it's been finding ways to engage and interact with people within the sport through YouTube. And um, it's, it's weird how it's changed my life, dude. It's super, super weird. That's really interesting. Your answer Cody, because you know, of all the coaches I interview, like on the swim coaches base podcast, inevitably a handful, they'll say, Hey, I take two weeks off and I'm just no swimming. And then even throughout the season, they make sure they take very specific breaks. And like yeah. one, one coach I interviewed, like had this woodworking like hobby and he was like That's really awesome. good at it or whatever, you know? And he talked about how that helped him become a better coach. And yeah. I think in the sport, it's sometimes so backwards that swimmers and coaches think this has to be singular focus in my life. And then they run into an injury or a burnout and you wonder, oh, you know, well, I have no other interests. Of, of course, your life's going to be miserable. But then people like you say, hey, I had this other thing. And even if it is kind of related to swimming, it's not just you, you know, bearing your head about the times or, or the training or something. And it helps you have that joy and like be a more rounded person. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly correct. I mean, for me, it was 
you know, cause swimming for me has always been this, it's always been my outlet, right? Like mm. in all of my darkest times in my personal life, um, swimming has always been there to fall back on, whether it was coaches, whether it was mentors or mainly friendships. Um, and so, you know, when I'm struggling in the pool, it was interesting cause I found something else that is equally as related mm. to swimming to kind of fall back on and to kind of just enjoy super. But I, I do think that the biggest thing that you're hitting on is finding that balance. I think everybody yeah. needs to have that balance. You've talked about training a little bit so far, and we've had your coach, uh, Ray, on the podcast. Not released yet, but it'll be coming soon. You've been with him a long time. Talk yeah. about what training as a professional swimmer maybe looks like and how it may, may be different when you coming in as a freshman in college. I can't imagine, you know, it's the same. I'm sure there's a lot more of an even relationship, you know, so give and take, different. if you will. So, yeah, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I've been with Ray. This is like our tenth year together. That's crazy. And uh, it is it is crazy. And it's it's crazy to look back on the growth of our program. Um, you know, when I came into school here, it was pretty much middle distance and distance. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like if you if you want to be a four hundred iron, you're coming to the right place. <laughs> if you want to be a fifty freestyler, maybe maybe not the best. <laughs> uh, but now that's that's changed. I mean, you've got all these different groups. Um, I, I'd say specifically for me, you know. Ray and I really work in a, in a collaborative effort. I mean, you know, I do two or three of his breaststroke practices a week. And um, the biggest thing for us is always keeping the fundamentals that made me or made whoever fast still there, but while having the right amount of change, right? Because we can't just keep doing, you know, Ray has, has told me that I've helped make him a better coach, which makes me proud because he says that I'm forcing him to keep innovating. Like he can't mm. just keep giving swimmers the same sets for 10 <laughs> years. I would go crazy if he was still doing that. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of the, the base is still there, but um, we're always finding new ways to do resistance training, new ways to do hypoxic training, new ways to work on X, Y, and Z, which is super important. Um, and now it's kind of crazy that we have got this really great group of pros. I mean, I was the first, you know, post-grad swimmer to train at IU five years ago when I graduated. And now I think we've got about 15. Yeah. And yeah, it's uh, one of the bigger groups in the country. Yeah. And I think 10 of us are American um, and all vying for, for teams right now, which is really cool. It's, it's really a weird transformation. Like when I look at it, cause dude, there was a point in time, my freshman year when I was the sole male breaststroker. Oh, like wow. I was the only male breaststroker and it was just Ray and I, and now it's like, you know, we've got this breaststroke group and a lot of people filter in and out. Like our IMers come in every once in a while. Mm. Um, you know, there's like 30 people in the group now. It's fun. So what advice would you give to other swimmers specifically? I'm thinking maybe once you get into that college age and even if they're not a professional swimmer, how to at least start moving towards a collaborative effort with a coach. Cause I feel that's becoming more and more of a thing, but you still have to do the work. And so it's not like, Hey, because it's collaborative, we're going to be able to get out of this. You obviously know you need to do the work. So yeah, give some insight on that. It's funny because when people during our practices want something to change or they think that we should do something slightly different, they're always like, Cody, you should ask Ray. Yeah. If, I, if I ask, there's a chance Ray will make the adjustment. And to their credit, like sometimes that's true. Um, but people get mad at me because sometimes we'll be doing a set of like, I don't know, five 100s, you know, best average negative split on like 130 um, mm. in the middle of our pressure practice. And uh, I'll just be like, hey, Ray, because I'll feel like we didn't get enough you know, breath control at the beginning of the workout. Um, I'll be like, hey, Ray, maybe we should do these double pull out, you know, get a little extra breath. And everyone hates me for it. And they scream. So it's like it goes both ways. People either love it when I ask things or they hate it because <laughs> I'm not I'm not, you know, afraid to ask to make things harder, too. 
Um, but as far as making things a more collaborative effort, I, I mean, everybody's different. I mean, there's no roadmap to this, but I mean, I, I kind of feel like, especially in college that your first two years, you're kind of finding your footing. Mm. I think, especially your freshman year, it's, it's, it's learning the ins and outs of the team, you know, getting to know the coaches, forming that relationship, figuring out how you fit to the system. Um, and then your second year is, is, is a little bit more of that. And I think by the time junior year rolls around, that's kind of when, there's a little bit more communication about, okay, what the swimmer thinks needs to come into factor, like what they might think they need to do comes into play. I think at least I can only speak from my experience and from the experiences that I see of people training here at Indiana, but it seems like right around after two years, you know, if you want things slightly different or if you think you could benefit from doing something slightly different or whatever it may be, that's when, you know, the collaboration kind of comes into play. But I, I really feel like your first year, is you know not put your head down and just grind but right. you know, you're kind of finding your footing it's like coming into especially you know once again i'm only speaking from like training at a, in a, at a college program at a big university's perspective but you know as as a, a senior in high school coming into freshman year college it's like you know coming into a whole new system of training and joining a team is only one factor in your whole world that is completely mm. changing you know there's so much that goes into it yeah what role does dryland play in your training Right now, it's right now it's huge. Um, that for me is the biggest thing. Like right now, for me, really the only thing I can do to get faster is physically to increase my power output in the water. Mm. The only way to do that is to get stronger. So, particularly the last, really the last two months, uh, we've increased my weight room fifty percent. Oh wow! Um, yeah, fifty percent. Uh, so, how many sessions are you doing now? So, I'm in the weight room three or four times a week, and that's not including dryland. Um, and uh, so a lot of my, my swimming volume has gone down, but mm-hmm. my workload in the weight room has gone up. Um, actually, currently, I, I weigh now, right now I'm weighing heavier than I've ever weighed before. I'm like 182 right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I raced in Rio, for example, I was 170. Oh, wow. Like 182 right now. So I'm trying to put on lean muscle and I'm tra- training, you know, it's kind of an experiment. You see, put on a bunch of weight, as long as I'm still swimming fast and I'm still finishing sets well, it's okay. Right. When I start to peter out. That's when like, you know, but I, I'm still trying to. We're at the point where we're just, I mean, you know, I'm 10 years into training here. We got to, we got to change things up. We got to experiment. We got to try to get stronger. So, um, but yeah, weight room, that's, that's a big one right now. What was that conversation like? I mean, that is a big change in terms of, Hey, we're going to be in the weight room twice. You're going to add muscle and weight. Yeah. Bring me into those conversations a little bit. I mean, it's not like it was, uh, it wasn't a hard conversation to have, but I come from a background where I trained a lot in the like I right. swam yards and yards <laughs> on top of yards. Like I remember in high school showing up to work out and Ron was like, all right, everybody get ready. We're going to go in 8,000 IM. And he just started writing this pyramid of a set. And I was just like, how are we going to get through this? You know, like, so like I've got this big aerobic base and I've, I've trained, I train well doing that. You know, I, I think that that that's my background. And so for me, it was like, okay, I doing more in the pool, swimming more in the pool. I've gotten to the point where it's not going to help me go any faster. It's not going to help yeah. me lose hundreds of a second off of my best hundred time. But what will help me do that is to physically increase power output and to get stronger. And so, you know, one thing I'll credit Ray to is Ray is he's not afraid to change. Hmm. Um, he's not afraid to embrace something new and uh, and just take a take a shot, take a risk. Like right now, it's it's a little bit of a gamble because we've never done this before. You know, I've never, I've never swam this low of, in terms of volume in the pool before. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's kind of the, you know, 
the un, the uncanny valley right now. I don't really know what we're getting into, but uh, I'm excited. And it was weird because last year with my injury, with my knee injury, I was really only able to swim about 50% of the volume that oh, wow. I had been swimming really the years prior. You know, the years I, I was pretty much going 30, 35 a week. So 30,000 yards a week, which is not much in the yeah. pool. And it was shocking when this summer, you know, we, we, I got to the point where, okay, I was swimming okay, but I wasn't doing very much. And I was really just rehabbing my knee and had these gnarly procedures done. And then I, I went 59 low twice. And I was like, wow, okay, so I'm still able to swim fast now where do we go from here mm -hmm. and where we go from there is slowly start doing more in the pool. Cause now I'm able to do a little more in the pool, but really just get stronger. Yeah. I'm sorry. You got to tell me to shut up. I just, no, you're fine. I was going to say, speaking of new things, we got this thing called the ISL that I think you're a part of. What, what do you, what's your perspective on it? And how does that play into, especially the Olympic year, right? It's got to be making the th things a little bit interesting. It's so fascinating. I am so excited for the ice. Like I can't even, we could do an entire podcast talking about the ice. <laughs> because one of my biggest passions is I want swimmers to be able to, once they graduate college, join a league, join a team and make some money and be a real professional athlete. Mm -hmm. where, where you, you know, where you're able to actually financially support yourself. And that is the overall hope and dream of the ISL. And this is, you know, this, it being the test year, it's a little weird because it is the Olympic year. So we're kind of throwing a wrench in what is typically kind of the grind time, right? Like everyone's just kind of putting their head down and grinding right now. And we've got all these meets coming up. So for me, once again, this is just my perspective. This is just how I'm approaching it. I'm just treating it like a college dual meet. I'm training mm. all the way through it. You know, we've got our first meet in Indianapolis in two, what's today, Thursday. So two days. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm training right up to it. I'm getting to the meet and I will go as fast as I can, but given, given the state that I'm in, you know, I'm about to max out on leg press after this. So we'll <laughs> see how this week goes and that's okay. Uh, but honestly, it's it's fun because it's giving us an opportunity to swim. It's giving an opportunity for people to win, win a little bit more money. Um, it's it's hopefully going to. I think Tim Henchy's term was trialize certain swimming meets. Yeah, make, yeah. make more spectator friendly meets, more engaging meets, which is really what the sport needs. Um, dude, I could talk about this for hour, forever. I'm, I'm super psyched about it. Well, we'll have to have you on the new podcast, Cody, that we're launching called Pro Swim Talk. It's going to launch, I think, the week that this will go out. Cool. We're going to have athletes on from, you know, competing in the ISL because you're right. I think that if swimming is going to have continue to grow, there needs to be some professional aspect to it. And I think Phelps did a great job in kind of starting the baby stage of it and opened a lot of gates, but not, mm -hmm. like you said, not everybody is Phelps. And, and so how can we open the doors for a broader mass of swimmers to be able to be like yourself? Hey, college, great college career, not necessarily, you know, making the Olympics in college, but then, Hey, what can I do the next four or even eight years? And we saw Lizak swimming at, you know, in his thirties throwing down those times. Exactly. I mean, like the thing for me is, you know, I graduated college and became a pro swimmer and there was a, a period of time where I was making no money, yeah. right? How beautiful would it be if in a couple of years from now, someone in my position who was a good NCAA swimmer, but by no means an Olympic hopeful yet mm -hmm. can graduate college and, and be able to join. If there's 12 teams in the ISL yeah. coming forward, which is what they're talking about, they're going to have a lot of roster spots that they're going to need to fill. And if people are getting paid to keep swimming, I mean, that's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really exciting. I am, I'm very, very excited about it. Hmm. What was your, 
when it first was pitched to you, did you have this much excitement or was there anything like, oh, I'm not sure if this is going to fit into my schedule or no, anything like that? Not at all. I'm, I'm psyched. Like, like I said, it's, it's weird that this is the Olympic year. It's, it's, it's throwing more meets at, at a strange time. Um, but I think that, you know, our sport is trending in the right direction. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're finding ways to swim faster, more regularly. I think that the old model of train, 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 train taper once. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's changing. And like, quite honestly, it needs to change if we're ever going to make this a more spectator friendly sport. Right. Yeah. And I think that you have athletes who are starting to, you know, change their methods of training, still find ways to be fast. I mean, Michael Andrew comes up all the time, mm. you know, that dude's swimming fast all the time. And um, there's, there's a lot of people that kind of fit that mold that, you know, are able to rate, to use racing a part of their training, to use these meets as a part of their training leading into meets. And um, no, I mean, for me, I was excited right from the get-go. I was like, are you kidding me, dude? Elite, oh, get this. Okay, I grew up in Vegas. Okay. I know, I was about to say, the final is in hometown. <laughs> exactly. Like, if you were to tell 10-year-old Cody that there is going to be a professional swimming league and the championship was going to be at the Mandalay Bay Arena, which is a hotel I grew up swimming in their wave pool, I would have lost my mind. Okay, like, so no, I was psyched from the get-go. That's awesome. On that note, do you think about when you're going to stop swimming? I did over the last year and a half on and off with my knee injury, just because for the first time in my life, I was at the point where I wasn't sure if I was ever really going to be able to train again. Yeah. That was a scary thought. And now that I'm on the other side of that, and I know that I've overcome this hurdle as far as totally stopping, I don't think I'll ever totally stop swimming. But when I'll decide to stop competitively swimming and making it the center of what I'm doing, because like right now, you know, I've got a couple other things that I'm doing. Um, you know, I, I do my YouTube channel, this and that. But the most important thing to me right now is swimming fast. I'm trying to make another Olympic team. Like, how good can I be? Mm -hmm. uh, as far as when that will change, I don't really know. But I'm not really worried about it. You know, yeah. I am just just one year at a time. One year at a time. I would love to keep swimming. You know, if this if the ISL pans out the way that we hope it does. Honestly, man, who knows? Who knows? What advice would you give swimmers, whether or not they're professional, whether or not they've swum as often as you? I think a, a big negative thing, and uh, talking with coaches a lot of the times, you know, how can we make sure swimmers don't end with a bad taste in their mouth with the sport of, you know, leaving it with, God, you know, I, I could have done this or frustrated by an injury or just lack of burnout. What advice would you lend to that? Because especially you've had so many ups and downs and yet you're swimming so long and you still have fun and joy for it. What, what insights do you have for that? I'll tell you, I think that there's nothing that bums me out more than when I talk to an old, like a, a swimmer, an old swimmer yeah. who, you know, finished swimming and had a little bit of a bitter taste in their mouth. And I'm like, Hey man, you ever swim anymore? And they're like, I'll never touch the water again. Like that. That like hurts me. You spend so much of your life dedicating yourself to getting really good at something mm -hmm. and then you just stop cold turkey and then take it a step further. You're kind of bitter about it. You're like you dislike it. And I, I always, I, I, I actually enjoy having, I know guys like that. I'm sure yeah. you know people like that. Yeah. I'm sure people listening to this podcast know people like that. I like engaging in those conversations with those people to kind of break down those walls. So it's certainly a case-by-case -case basis. It's not a necessarily, I don't like it. You keep asking me advice. I do. I'm in no position to give people advice. I don't like giving advice. I will just talk 
but I like having conversations with people where I try to break down those walls and get to the why they feel a certain way. And ultimately I think it's, you know, maybe there is a failure, maybe there was a lack of success, maybe there was a coach they disagreed with. There's always a reason, mm. but I think that that reason is overshadowing this mountain of work and friendship and fun and time and enjoyment yeah. that they had in their sport that is just being clouded that they just can't see. Right. And I think that you kind of just, you have to find a way to remind those people that whatever you're bitter about or whatever you're upset about, like, look, if you never want to get in the pool again, just cause you don't want to work hard again, like that's okay. But you can't hate on a sport that made you who you are mm. because you can't, you cannot argue the fact that, you know, if you're a lifelong swimmer, if you swam growing up, you swam in high school and maybe even in college that you didn't learn a lot about yourself through this sport, yeah. you know, for various reasons. No, that's a good place to end. Cody, this conversation has been awesome. I know coaches, swimmers alike, are going to benefit from it. And we're going to be excited watching you and the rest of the swimmers in the ISL in the coming months and, and definitely follow you for the Olympic year here. Thank you. I'm excited. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was great. I hope I didn't, didn't annoy or talk too much. That was great.